0: One,
1: two, Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, better lock your door. Five, six, grab your crucifix. Seven, eight, gonna stay up late. Nine, ten, never sleep again. So, if you hadn't guessed already, guys, this week's show is all about A Nightmare on Elm Street. Because that's the rhyme. Like, if you didn't know. If you didn't know, like, why are you listening to this podcast? Everybody's seen that film. Right, Jess? You've seen that. You've seen that film and all of the films, haven't you?
0: I have so many times. I love it. They're like
1: a childhood staple,
0: I think. They are. Well, maybe not for most children, because yeah I think it's a little bit dark and twisted, but for us definitely a childhood staple. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah for us, like it was normal. It would be like watching The Simpsons, like it's just a regular <laughs> a regular franchise of something. um yeah, it was definitely it was one of the first horror films I watched, definitely one of the first ones when I was I don't know seven or eight. <laughs> it was after fright Night, but it was it was there. It was among them all. I just love that film. Ah oh. but did you know? there are true stories based around that story of Freddy Krueger? Oh yes.
0: I am really like excited but also really nervous to hear this because I'm sure I'm not going to sleep after listening to this. Well
1: yeah I mean it there's a lot but there's a lot also of this is not going to be a full-length episode. This will be a long episode but not like a Like, not like a typical Eliza banging on about crap for an hour and a half. This will definitely be shorter than that, because there are there are elements to it, but there are lots of things that make up this film, which I think is really interesting. It's not like one big story. There are lots of little things that came together to make this film and then the franchise, which is quite fascinating. So shall we get into it?
0: Let's jump straight straight into it yay
1: let's get into it so great horror films don't win academy awards that is what horror auteur wes craven said about his own films instead they make money and wes would have known because in his career he started two pretty much billion dollar horror franchises scream of course which we've already featured on the podcast and which the fifth film is due out is it later this year now they're doing it or early next year i think they were planning this year but it might have been bumped to next year Scream 5, yeah. There are pictures of it on Instagram in the editing suite. It's very cool to see the next Scream film is on its way. But of course, so he started the Scream franchise, did old Wes Craven, and A Nightmare on Elm Street, which became a pretty big franchise. You've got A A Nightmare on Elm Street, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, number four was The Dream Master, five, The Dream Child, next one, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, then Wes Craven's new nightmare, then Freddy versus Jason, and then the remaking of A Nightmare on Elm Street, which I'm not even getting into because it is absolute pants. (laughs) That film is just, oh my God, I want my money back from seeing that film, even 10 years on, 11 years. It's been a while, but I still want my money back from that film. It was terrible. I haven't even bothered
0: to to be honest. I mean, the, the original was just so classic. Freddy is one of those villains. One of those classic horror villains that just kind of, I don't know, just, it just stays with you. I mean, it, he's iconic, for lack of a better word.
1: He haunts your nightmares, he as does. he does the nightmares of the protagonists in the films. Well, we've already discussed on, on Witchery um, two of Wes Craven's films, as I mentioned before, Scream. And we also did for our very first episode, did we not, Jess, The Serpent in the Rainbow.
0: Yes, which I am still obsessed with.
1: Yes, I I have watched it actually, I think like twice since we did the recording, like... Three months ago now, whenever it was. Yeah, oh God, I love that film. But yeah, so that is the first episode where we actually discussed as well A Nightmare on Elm Street and namely Johnny Depp in a crop, chop. A crop top. A crop top, I think I nearly said crotch top. Johnny Depp in a crop top. <laughs> crotch top could be interesting too. I mean, I'm sure Johnny Depp's won plenty of those too in his time. And maybe we'd have liked to have seen it back in the 80s. But in this film, it was a crop top, not a crotch top. Um, but yeah, Johnny Depp in a crop top. Uh always fun. That was fun in games. I mean, that has been one of the iconic images from the film, I think. Johnny Depp with his little bare tanned midriff being shown off to the world for the first time. So um, obviously Wes Craven and Freddy Krueger are the two most important things about this franchise. But Johnny Depp and that crop top, they are in there. So after all of the major studios passed on his script, Wes Craven met somebody called Bob Shea from New Line Cinema, of course now you may know New Line Cinema as being synonymous with Freddy Krueger, who was an erudite film industry hustler. And their nightmare on Elm Street coming from Wes Craven's initial script, was released in November 1984 and would become one of the most important and lucrative franchises in film history. It helped restore the idea of the evil monster, so the evil stalking monster. In this case, the very, very burnt, looking a bit like an overdone pizza. Striped sweater-wearing, very crispy, crispy, kind of crispy, maybe tasty, maybe not so tasty, maybe not so tasty. Very, very barbecued, (laughs) Um, striped sweater-wearing, dream-haunting, pizza-faced killer Freddy Krueger to top billing in Fright Films. So it spawned eight sequels, as I've mentioned, grossed a cumulative, I can't speak today, $370 million, and turned New Line Cinema into an industry powerhouse, as well as launching the career of Johnny Depp and his crop top. So, (laughs) (laughs) sorry about that that crotch top johnny depp's crotch top and so what was nightmare on elm street the film well in march 1981 lovely young tina gray wakes from a nightmare where she's being attacked by a disfigured man wearing a blade fixed glove in a boiler room it's pretty damn scary that opening scene actually and you hear a sheep i love the sheep buying and seeing a little sheep that is just so bizarre but of course sheep and dreams it works well she wakes up to find four mysterious slashes in her nightgown. The following morning, Tina's consoled by her best friend, lovely Nancy and Nancy's boyfriend, Glenn. So that's Heather Langenkamp playing Nancy. And of course, Johnny Depp playing Glenn. Uh, she's freaked out. Her mum's gonna be away. She doesn't wanna be on her own. So Glenn and Nancy say that they'll stay at Tina's house when, mother go- when her mother goes out of town. But during the evening, they are interrupted by Tina's boyfriend, Rod, who is pretty much a loudmouth, kind of bit of a grotesque toxic male. I mean, you need them in a horror film, don't you, quite frankly. They uh, go and have a little bit of fun in the bedroom while Glenn and Nancy have to stay in separate rooms because Nancy is not letting Glenn anywhere near her yet, even though he's her boyfriend. She's given him none of it. So Nancy starts having a dream about Freddy Krueger and Rod wakens to see her being thrown all over the ceiling, covered in blood, pretty much slashed to bits, and dropped onto the bed, dead. So everybody thinks that rod is the murderer despite his pleas of innocence including nancy's father don who is the local sort of chief of police at school nancy falls asleep in class and she starts dreaming that the man chasing tina in her dreams is now tracing her into a boiler room where she's cornered she deliberately burns her arm on a hot pipe to wake herself up and basically starts screaming in class she's let go out of the class and goes to see Rod at the police station. He tells her exactly what happened to Tina along with his own nightmares about a burned, disfigured man wearing a striped t-shirt with a dirty brown hat in a boiler room, wearing a glove with four knives on them. Ooh, it's funny. All these kids having the same dream. Glenn is also admitting to having nightmares too. So what is going on in these kids' dreams? It starts to make Nancy think that Rod is actually innocent because they're all sharing this dream and that the man in the dream is responsible for basically slaughtering Tina and throwing her all over the ceiling. At home, later that night, Nancy gets into the bathtub and is nearly drowned by Freddy Krueger pushing his hand up through the water. Yes, this is the man. His name is Freddy Krueger. Nancy doesn't want to sleep because of basically not wanting to be slaughtered in her dreams. So she starts taking lots of caffeine, um, having loads of coffee, anything she can do to stay awake, and asks Glenn her beloved Johnny Depp, not yet in a crop top to watch over her as she sleeps. In her dream, Nancy sees the man, Freddy Krueger, prepared to kill Rod in his cell, but then he turns his attention towards her. Nancy runs away screaming and her alarm clock goes off. In Rod's cell, Freddy Krueger kills Rod by wrapping bedsheets around his neck like a noose, making it look like a suicide. At Rod's funeral, Nancy's parents start to become a little bit concerned when she's going on about the dreams that she's having about this burnt man with the knives. Her mother takes her to a sleep disorder clinic, where in her dream, Nancy actually manages to grab the fedora off the man's head, off Freddy Krueger's head, and bring it out from the dream into reality. But still, even though she's got this hat with the name Fred Krueger written inside it, no one is believing her. Or are they, and they're just not wanting to admit it? Her mum suddenly goes little bit skits and barricades the house. She puts bars on the windows, she puts locks on the doors, everything to keep, she says, Nancy safe. But safe from what nancy is has a bit of an argument a bit of a, an argy-bargy with her mother marge and she finds out from marge that kruger was actually a real man fred kruger he was an insane child murderer he was accidentally released on a technicality and then burned alive by the parents in the neighborhood living on their street in fact seeking vigilante justice so he was a caretaker at the school and he used to take his victims down to the boiler room the boiler room in the dreams. Nancy realizes that Fred Krueger is now basically a pretty pissed off ghost who's coming back to seek revenge and to also satiate his psychopathic needs. Nancy, trying to stay awake, realizes that Glenn could also be next, so tries to keep him awake and he lives opposite her, so she's trying to get his attention. Um sadly, Glenn falls asleep and is killed by Kruger in the crop top in a bloodbath. And there is blood everywhere.
0: We've mentioned we mentioned that scene um in our first episode and how um, just stand out it is with all that blood and you just get like swallowed up by the bed and there's just blood
1: everywhere. It's gross man. It is gross. It's literally like they say basically when the police officer, when Don, Nancy's dad goes to identify Glenn and the other police officers, there's nothing to identify. And one of them is vomiting because he's basically, he's just a load of gore. Ooh, Freddie did you know did did the the number on him that was not great so nancy devastated but determined to catch kruger in the act decides to booby trap her house it's pretty cool she starts putting um like gunpowder in light bulbs and trip wires and all sorts of stuff all over the place thinking if she can bring him out of her dream and trap him she's got him it does seem a bit bonkers when it is freddy krueger and he's not actually alive but here we go she's gonna give it her best shot so she does it she actually manages to pull him out of her dream and lights him on fire and locks him in the basement she rushes to her door to help the police find that krueger has actually escaped from the basement so her dad rushes in the police rush in to try and help her and she's like i've trapped him in the basement but they go down there he's not there Oh no, in fact, he's managed to make his way upstairs to her mother's room and smothered her mother while alight on the bed. Very weird scene where, oh, that's a really creepy scene where the bed's sort of like the mother and Kruger seem to kind of get sucked into the bed with all this smoke and light. And then the mother comes back up as like this emaciated skeleton waving goodbye at her and then disappearing into the bed. It's very, very disturbing. That actually freaked me out more than anything in that film. That one, even more than the blood, that scene when I was a kid really freaked me out, guys. That was not fun. Nancy realises that Kruger is still there, but the only way, following Native American um, stories that Glenn told her about basically turning your back on a monster in the dream to to take away any fear, because they feed off fear, she decides the only way she can actually defeat Kruger isn't pulling him out of her dream and booby trapping and trying to get him that way. She needs to turn her back on him and show she's not scared of him. And when he appears in the room again, ready to slaughter her with his knives ready, she does that and he disappears. So you think, well, hey, she saved the day. She wakes the next morning, finds her mum is still alive. Everything seems great. Glenn and Tina and Rod are waiting for her in a car outside to go to school, and everything seems wonderful. But as they start to drive off, Freddy Krueger's very famous striped pattern appears on the car locks them in. It sort of appears on the roof of the car, locks them in, and she turns to see her mother sucked through the front door by Freddy Krueger and them locked in the car, sort of basically driving down the street, as some kids jumping a skip rope, a jump rope, whatever you call it, are singing, one, two, Freddy's coming for you. That's the film, guys. If you haven't seen it, that's just to give you a little bit of the synopsis, so you can understand what we're about to discuss it's a, <laughs> over the next 45 minutes.
0: It's a great film. It really is. It's, it's one of those classic horrors that if you haven't seen, you really need to watch.
1: You've got to watch it. I mean, who doesn't love Robert Englund's burnt-faced, pizza-faced, psychopathic child killer? Freddy Krueger, I mean, he's an icon now. He's actually an icon. It's quite disturbing that a psychopathic child killer is like a <laughs> horror icon and, like, quite comical. I mean, over the years, particularly, guys, if you've been watching the films, you'll probably have seen he's always been slightly amusing while being terrifying. And then he just got funnier and funnier as time went on. He just really did. He actually yeah. got quite hilarious. And his kills got more and more ridiculous and elaborate throughout the films. Uh, and he came into his own. Did he not? He came into his own.
0: He really did.
1: But, um... I mean, I've seen all of the films. Have you, Jess? Have you seen all eight of them?
0: Possibly. I must <laughs> Possibly. have. I mean, eight's a big number. Eight's um, <laughs> a lot of films. Eight's a lot of films. I, yeah, I I don't think I've seen all, all of them. Like, I haven't watched the remake. Um, the last one I remember watching is Freddy vs. Jason.
1: Oh, yeah. I kind of love to hate that film because it's really quite bad, but yet it's Freddy and Jason.
0: I know. Like, it has... It should be perfect, but it's crap. But it's not.
1: But it's basically shite. Freddy Krueger. Where did he come from? Well, did you know that actually Robert Englund, the famed Shakespearean actor who has become the iconic character and world famous as a result, and I'm guessing very rich, he was not in the lead to play Freddy Krueger? Oh, no, no, no. Actor David Warner. Now, he was in Twin Peaks and also in The Mouth of Madness. He's a brilliant British actor. Horror fans. Look him up. He's in a lot of horrors. Also in In Wallander in Wallander fairly recently with Kenneth Branagh he was due to play Freddy he was actually cast with makeup tests done as well but he had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts which is a bit sad because he would have been great but then we would have been without Robert England, which would have been rubbish at first Kane Hodder who later played Jason Voorhees I can never pronounce this properly who played Jason in Friday the 13th that trilogy series many films was actually the next one in line to play Freddy. According to Hodder, he actually said, I had a meeting with Wes Craven about playing a character he was developing called Freddy Krueger. At the time, Wes wasn't sure what kind of person he wanted for Freddy. I had as good a shot as anybody else. He was initially thinking of a big guy for the parts, which obviously Kane was, and he was also thinking of somebody who had real burn scars. But obviously, he changed his whole line of thinking and went with Robert Englund, who's smaller. I would have loved to have played that part, but I do think... Wes made the right choice. I think we all think that as well. Um, As you know, Hodder would eventually play Freddy as the hand that grabs Jason's mask in the epilogue, Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday. Um, Wes Craven explained that I couldn't find an actor to play Freddy Krueger with the sense of ferocity I was seeking. During the film's 30th anniversary, he said everyone was too quiet, too compassionate towards children. Then Robert England auditioned. He wasn't as tall as I'd hoped, and he had baby fat on his face, or, but he impressed me with his willingness to go to the dark places in his mind others didn't. Robert understood Freddy. I love that.
0: that. That is pretty cool, but also, like, the compassion towards kids that that whole comment and then how he was ready to go to the dark places in his mind. That's quite <laughs> um, quite
1: interesting. Does make you think again about Robert Englund. I don't know much about his life. Does he have children? I will look this up and let you know later, <laughs> fact fans, because that could be intriguing. Um, Robert Englund said that Craven was indeed in search of sort of a big giant man, which you can understand because you'd think for an imposing horror monster, you would want somebody who, who would be able to physically threaten people. But um, of course, you know, Robert England was, was quite petite, quite, quite slender, quite a slight man. But casting director Annette Benson had actually sort of talked Craven into to auditioning England after he'd auditioned for National Lampoon's class reunion in 1982, which is quite funny, actually, comedy. but he was described as rat-like and weasel-like and they kind of got him to to sort of accentuate that during the audition saying that when we read about abusers and molesters in the newspaper they're not big hulking men but often weasels and joe rice um who was england's agent at the time basically said you should go in and play it like that and it worked he darkened his lower eyelids rob england with cigarette ash on his way to the audition and slicked his hair back He said, I looked strange. I sat there and listened to Wes talk. He was tall and preppy and erudite. I posed a bit like Klaus Kinski and that was the audition. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He took the part because he said it was the only project that fit in his schedule during the hiatus between the V miniseries and the next series, which he was part of. So it just kind of worked. And Wes Craven basically said he looked at hundreds of people. Um, but he he had this evil he was able to transmit as an actor. Um, he wasn't just a stunt man. He was sort of he really relished in playing a kind of a weaselly horrible character. Really, yeah. And so that's how Freddy Krueger was born through Robert Englund which is quite cool. That is quite um, cool. Yeah, and it's sort of when he, apparently when he was, this is quite interesting because um, one of these actresses ended up being in Scream, but when he was looking for somebody for Nancy, he found Heather Langenkamp, who'd only really been in sort of small things. She was actually studying at Stanford at the time and was just doing bits of acting. She was in a few commercials and a TV film, but she actually won through an open audition, beating out 200 other actresses. And she'd lost out to people like Courtney Cox and Jennifer Grey and stuff like that. But they had all auditioned for A Nightmare on Elm Street. But this time around, she got the part over all of them. So that's quite cool. She's sort of like a little, little unknown actress from from um, just a few TV commercials. Got, got the big gig of the one of the first and best final girls let's face it.
0: Definitely one of the best final balls.
1: Yeah, I mean, pretty awesome. Then Johnny Depp came along, obviously, to play Glenn. <laughs> Johnny Depp in his crop top. He was another unknown when he was cast. So that was in, in the 1984 film. Nobody knew him. They wanted a jock. So again, a bit like they wanted for Freddy Krueger. They wanted a big guy, a kind of a big football, you know, maybe blonde beach jock. But... Wes Craven's daughters picked Johnny Depp's headshot from set, and I don't blame them. <laughs> I think most girls in the 80s would have looked at a photo of Johnny Depp and been like, Yes, put him in if that's the
0: one you want him.
1: Yeah, I want him. Um, funnily enough, and I'll get to Mark Patton later, an actor called Mark Patton, who was later cast as Jesse Walsh in the sequel in Freddy's Revenge, auditioned for the part of Glenn and actually claimed that the auditioners had been winnowed down to him and Johnny Depp before Depp got the role. So he said that he was one of the last ones to get the role opposite um, other auditioners, including John Cusack, Brad Pitt, Kiefer Sutherland, Nicholas Cage, and C. Thomas Howell. So that's kind of interesting.
0: That is kind of interesting. That's an impressive list of talent there.
1: Yeah, they all auditioned, but they didn't get it. Oh no, Johnny Depp got it. So that was kind of the main main cast, sort of the main three and also the main big names of Johnny Depp, who then became a very, very big name. So the film started shooting on June the 11th, 1984, and only lasted 32 days, which is kind of impressive when you look at the film, because you'd think there'd be a lot more to it. You'd think it might have ended up being a six-week or eight-week shoot, but it was 32 days all filmed around LA.
0: That's actually very impressive.
1: So the high school was actually filmed at John Marshall High School, where Grease and Pretty in Pink have also been filmed. So that's the high school from Grease. The fictional house, Nancy's house, was 1428 Elm Street, of course. But actually in real life, it was a private home in LA at 1428 North Janice Avenue. So yeah, it was a real home that they filmed around, obviously a set inside. The boiler room scenes and police station interiors were all shot in the Lincoln Heights Jail, closed since 1965 building. And the exterior used for the police station was the, okay, don't laugh, the Kahuenga branch library. <laughs> That's me not being able to pronounce much. I'm and not the
0: Ameri- even going to try and and attempt to <laughs> wrap my, my tongue around that, no.
1: No, this is the thing. If you listen to this podcast regularly, Jess and I, we are not good at speaking English (laughs) in generally most of the time. Things will get pronounced in a very strange way. Um, And the American Jewish University on Mulholland Drive was actually used for the study of sleep disorders where uh, Nancy goes and pulls Freddie's hat out of her dream. Ho, 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 pretty good. So, yeah, so they were the kind of locations for the film. It was kind of, you know, a, quite an easy shoot from the sound of it. They had a lot of fun doing it. It didn't sound like there were any horror stories from the actual shoot. The scene, actually, when Nancy's attacked by Kruger in her bathtub was actually accomplished with a special bottomless tub, which is quite cool. So the tub was put in a bathroom set that was built over a swimming pool. I still think this is awesome. So this is where Freddy Kruger's hand comes up through the bar. That was actually through a swimming pool. So then, yeah, it was built, like, the bathroom set was built over a swimming pool. So when she gets dragged in, and she knows she's in that massive pool of water, being drowned by Freddie.
0: She's in a massive pool of water.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, The melting staircase in Nancy's dream was Robert Shay's idea, um, based on one of his own nightmares. And they created it using pancake mix.
0: I'm not going to look at pancakes the same way again.
1: No? No. Well, I mean, wow. who would? Who would? The film crew constructed this sort of Freddy's boiler room and they gave him a sleeping place to kind of, for Freddy to try and kind of show he was a bit of a hobo, an outcast from, you know, society. They um, He sort of surrounded him with naked Barbie dolls and kind of other weird creepy things and that was the place where he's supposed to have forged his glove and abducted and murdered his his victims so they kind of made, made it sort of as spooky as possible. The film special effects artist Jim Doyle got basically sorted out that scene you know when freddy's arms extend in tina's dream yeah so he's in an alleyway yeah and his arms get like accordions they just get really really long dude um, for some
0: reason that scene was a nightmare fodder for me for like so long when i was a kid
1: well yeah wouldn't it be though it's horrendous <laughs> a man with knives for fingers and long arms coming to get you is pretty horrendous it's horrendous It's not great. So I love this. So basically, where his face and his hands stretch through the wall and reach out for Nancy when she dreams. It was the wall was actually built by Doyle out of spandex. All done out of spandex. Wow. Which is pretty cool. Anyway, there's just a few bits about what happened during filming. Just kind of fun stuff. So filming wrapped at the end of July, 1984. And the film was rushed to get ready for its November release. So they finished it in July and managed to release it in November. Pretty good going.
0: That's impressive.
1: Yeah. Um, The budget started off at $700,000 and apparently they went way over budget. So it ended up at 1.1 million. A lot of the investors at one time or another backed out during the pre-production. Half the funding came from a Yugoslavian chap who had a girlfriend that he wanted in movies. (laughs) So he was just like, oh, if I start producing movies, I can get my girlfriend in films. She didn't end up in A Nightmare on Elm Street, I'll put it that way. (laughs) Um, So when Wes Craven was kind of sort of trying to get things together he he was so disappointed that he got rejection letters from every studio he'd written this great script nobody believed in it he was like oh he even framed the rejection letter from universal pictures that he had on his office wall and even um the director of friday the 13th one of his friends sean s cunningham basically said this will never work he said i don't know if an audience is going to buy into this yeah dreams are real but at some point you wake up so of course the major theme of A Nightmare on Elm Street is dreams and Freddy Krueger coming after kids in their dreams, basically. But when Craven was looking at killers, he was looking at Leatherface, Michael Myers, Jason. He originally wanted his villain to have a mask, but to be able to taunt and threaten. So the only way he thought he could do this without copying, you know, these other very famous killers in movies was to give him a different look. So instead he went for the burnt and scarred look. So there could be a mask like thing, but it wasn't a physical mask. It wasn't a ski mask. It wasn't a leather, you know, a a mask made of skin, anything like that. And another one of the producers actually said, The great characters in horror films, Frankenstein and Dracula, they all have personalities, and they're all portrayed by real actors. Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, not stuntmen. As Hitchcock said, the better the villain, the better the movie. I would say that definitely works. Very true. Very true. Very much so in the case of Nightmare on Elm Street. So let me give you a few fun facts. Do you want a few fun facts?
0: Yes, please. Let's
1: hear them. So Wes Craven's interest in horror in general was actually partly inspired by a time, this is so fucked up, he killed a rat with a bow and arrow as a child.
0: What? I mean,
1: Wh- yeah. What? He killed a rat with a bow and arrow as a child. Apparently, the. I mean, I don't like rats, guys, but this. Is, I would never want to kill one. Um, I just want them to not be in my house or my garden or anywhere near me. Well, that's the animal- Gross. Isn't it? It's just, why would you kill an animal? And it, listen to this, so Jess, listen. The animal let out a blood-curdling scream but oh didn't God. die. No. Didn't die. So Craven had to finish it off.
0: Oh, good lord, no.
1: Which took oh, many attempts.
0: Many attempts. Oh, no. <laughs> it made him
1: realise how much effort you have to go to to kill something, which horrified him.
0: I'm sorry, I'm at a complete loss. Um, Like, what?
1: Wh- what? And that's where his interest in horror came from. Woohoo! From killing a rat. Many times. Well, trying to kill it many times. And failing and then finally killing it. And yeah, that's grotesque. Let's get on to another fun fact. <laughs> the actor who was cast to play the coroner in the film recommended a musician friend of his who played in a rockabilly band to play Glenn. That guy's name was Johnny Depp. So that is how the headshot ended up on the table on the set of a movie that Wes Craven looked at and his daughters looked at and his daughters went, yeah, you're going to choose him.
0: Huh, that is quite interesting.
1: The film was actually Depp's first movie role, as mentioned, and his death scene, I love this, involved tipping around 500 gallons of fake blood into an upside down rotating bedroom set.
0: That's a lot of blood.
1: See when it all spews out and he's like dragged in with his little crop top and his headphones and he's like, and then he comes out as a load of gore. That is 500 gallons of fake blood to make that gore. Wes Craven remembered that Depp, aged just 21, looked like he hadn't showered and his fingers were stained yellow from nicotine. Wes Craven described him as a greasy, pale, and sickly boy. <laughs> um, oh, poor boy. I mean, he doesn't, he hasn't really changed much as a man. I think he's still nicotine stained and a bit greasy, but he's Johnny Depp. So whatever your issues are with Johnny Depp right now, we don't know the facts, guys. Let's stay on the fence. Let's stay on the fence. Charlie Sheen. Ugh. Was originally cast as Glenn, but they couldn't afford his three thousand dollar a week fee. Thank Christ, because Charlie Sheen cannot fucking act to save his life.
0: Sorry, he's terrible. No, he is terrible,
1: and he's trash. He is trash. Martin Sheen, a G. Love,
0: love Martin Sheen. He is. Hello, the West Wing. And um, hello, the West
1: Wing. But no, Charlie Sheen.
0: What's the one on Netflix, Grace and Frankie?
1: Oh, I love that show. I love Grace and Frankie. Yeah, he's awesome in everything. Apocalypse Now, all of it. I love him. Charlie, not so much. Mm-mm. The blood fountain from um, Glenn's sort of mashup, <laughs> <laughs> literal <Masher>. mashup, <laughs> crop top mashup, uh, ended up going all over the stage and the electrics and caused a power cut on the set. Oh, shit. Yeah, not great. <laughs> the blood, which was made from water and caro syrup, so like your typical corn syrup kind of blood, uh, destroyed several cameras. That's oh, not great.
0: fuck the insurance company must have loved them
1: exactly oh not great not great at all so you know that robert Englund's freddy krueger voice is very deep and menacing yeah it's very unnatural especially when you hear him talk he's got you know a good voice but he's a shakespearean actor but they used a sound effect called very speed to slow his voice down and make it more frightening so that's never really his voice it's it's a bit like scream with the the serial killer you know where they're using the, the voice changer yeah um though it's obviously played by an actor in reality but it's like a voice changer and it changed robert england's voice i think that's quite cool
0: that is quite cool
1: um as i mentioned england is a trained shakespearean actor and in real life is said to be charming and sweet which i love he's a nice guy he's not a serial killer pedo child murderer he's just um, an
0: amazing actor he really he's just is a fabulous an actor, actor.
1: A Nightmare on Elm Street was shot on the same stage used to film the series I Love Lucy.
0: (laughs) I love that. That is such a random fact. That's amazing.
1: There were three versions of Freddy's bladed glove, one made of balsa wood, one made of rubber, and a real one made with fish knives known as the hero glove that could actually cut things. That would have been really bad if they got those mixed up.
0: Yeah, I don't think that would have ended very well.
1: No. Every time somebody put the hero glove on, so that's the fish knives one, they injured themselves because it was incredibly sharp. And if you closed your fist, the blades cut your arm.
0: Mm.
1: Mm. And it was so heavy, it made poor Robert Englund's shoulders droop, which became actually part of Freddy's look. So, you know, he slightly stooped on one side. That's because it was such a heavy glove. <laughs> he couldn't really, like, keep level. So, yeah, he's slightly stooped because of that.
0: But it kind of just adds to this menacing figure that he's slightly stooped.
1: Yeah, I think it works. It does. It really works. Freddie's appearance was partly inspired by the main character in a series of pulp novels from the 1930s called The Shadow. I suppose, you know, the fedora, kind of old-fashioned brown fedora is quite sort of 30s style. Freddie's makeup took around 3.5 hours to finish each day. Ugh! And he had to wear it, Paul Robert England, for 12 to 15 hours a day. He was boiling hot underneath because they were filming it in June.
0: Good lord. Yeah, not fun. They should have filmed it in June in South Africa. They'd be freezing. He'd be fine. I know.
1: See, this is why more films are being made in South Africa now, I think, because there's just more realistic weather. You can kind of time things properly. And and, Exactly. So (laughs) Better than LA and lack of tax breaks. Uh, one day, I love this. The crew went to a Thai restaurant across the street for the set, from the set, for a meal because they were starving. And Robert Englund just couldn't face taking the makeup off. So he went with the full Freddy makeup on. The waiter was so frightened, he dropped his tray and ran out of the restaurant. Oh, no. Shame. <laughs> I love that. It's just like, but wouldn't you, though?
0: Oh, hell. I
1: would note the <laughs> fuck out. Because at least now we know, because, like, we grew up with Freddie. Um, so if we saw Robert Englund in the makeup, we'd be like, dude, love you. But if you didn't know about this film, it was a brand new film. And you just saw this guy who, because he wasn't, um, it's it's not being made even to like a burn victim. You know, you're not going to be horrible. He was made to look like evil, he was the undead. Yeah, You know, like meant to look like he wasn't alive anymore. Like this is, that's pretty terrifying. Elm Street was the name of the street where JFK was shot. Craven said it's the street where innocence ended. That's sad.
0: Wow, I didn't know that. That is.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that either. To be honest, in in Dallas, Texas, yeah, the revolving room set that was used for Tina's death scene, so where she's basically she's just slept with Rod, had this dream about Freddie, wakes up and she's chucked all over the ceiling. That was inspired. This is bonkers by the set in a Fred Astaire film called Royal Wedding, where Fred Astaire danced up the walls. I mean, what? Fred Astaire and,
0: <laughs> and Fred Freddie? Astaire and like. They're both, Fred. They're both friends. They're both yeah, friends, So I can see the, the connection. That's that And insane.
1: Freddy Krueger danced poor old Tina up the wall. <laughs> <laughs> he... <laughs> danced all of her up the wall. And emptied her up the wall. Oh, good Lord. Amanda Weiss, who played Tina, got such bad vertigo in the in the spinning room during the filming. Um, so she said that the terror during her death scene because of this terrible vertigo was 75% real.
0: I can believe that.
1: It's horrible though man. Mm. Um for the scene where Tina stalks Nancy in a body bag so she turns up at school basically in one of the scenes in this this body bag and she um sort of opens it and, and and like an eel comes out of her mouth. I think it's an eel. Like some something awful comes out of her mouth and she's like Nancy. Oh. She was actually zipped up inside a real body bag the film crew just got from the local morgue.
0: I hope they washed it before she got in there
1: same dude same she was terrified i'd be also like hygiene especially like, with co- after yeah. covid times i'm obsessed with hygiene now that would just be like <laughs> freaking me out like you cuz you can catch diseases from dead bodies can't you there's a mm-hmm. certain disease you can catch necrophiliacs catch it i can't remember what it's called ew am i making this up That's i'm sure true. i read this somewhere <laughs> in my I... weird external reading about necrophiliacs um
0: i'll ask the google search so not- diseases called by necrophilia health risks from dead bodies ebola
1: oh wow is good lord
0: but um according to health professionals the fear of spread of disease by bodies killed by trauma rather than disease is not justified
1: have i just made this up then it's an urban
0: urban legend where this girl goes to a party yeah. and there's this really hot guy and she makes out with him and the next day she gets like or a couple of days later she gets like blisters on her mouth and she goes to the doctor and the doctor's like, well, like, what the fuck have you been doing? Because that's like spread from a pathogen you can only catch from dead bodies.
1: Oh, have I believed an urban legend? (laughs) That's what I I, kind of read something like that. That sounds really familiar. I thought it was gonna be like something like, you know, some kind of weird form of syphilis or something. There we go. I think I've, guys, I've just (laughs) believed an urban legend because I'm a moron. Shows you people, idiots like me believe these things. Dude, you're, okay, hardy, there we go. you're hardly
0: an idiot. But-
1: oh, well, there we go, guys. You're, you're fine. If you're a necrophilia, <laughs> you're unlikely to, to, con- to contract a disease. So fill your boots. Go crazy. Don't do that. Do not commit any acts of necrophilia. It is wrong on so many levels. And you deserve to be jailed and possibly have a lobotomy. But there we go. That's just me. Um, this is a sad <laughs> fact. This is quite sad. So the actor who played Rod Lane was addicted to heroin. And had been homeless when he got cast in the movie. He would actually snort drugs in the bathroom on set, and he was high during the jail scene.
0: Oh no, that's yeah. terribly sad.
1: That's quite sad. The stairs I mentioned before in the sticky stair scene were bisquick, so this is the specific pancake mix they were, Bisquick. <laughs> and it cost twelve dollars and matched the carpet colour. So the sticky stairs, bisquick baby. Producer Rachel Tallalay said the film was so frightening nightmare on elm street that the crew were scared filming it despite all the lights and cameras and the fact that they knew ex- exactly how everything was done and the fact that nothing horrible actually happened on set they were still terrified every day wow i think yep. i'd be too though yeah so would i i mean really with a guy you know a-, a burned dead guy coming back to life haunting your dreams murdering you in your dreams with gloves covered in knives you That's would be horrific. like oh ah taking yeah. you down to a boiler room um the movie made on its initial release its first release 24 million dollars which is damn good for a film with a budget of 1.1 million dollars
0: $1. yeah that's a success
1: that's a big success <laughs> and this is my favorite little fact for the end of this wes craven's mother never watched any of his films until she was in her late 80s she would say to him honey why don't you make nice films <laughs> It's so cute <laughs> that <is> so cute <laughs> um bless her heart so there are two things i mean obviously we kind of alluded to this but there are two quite stark themes in a nightmare on elm street obviously before like the horror aspect of it and the fact that it's kind of a slasher movie bar psychological bar you know body horror there's a sexual element a kind of a weird sexual element to the film so freddie obviously exclusively kind of goes after teenagers and his actions have been interpreted as symbolic of the often traumatic experiences of adolescence so nancy like any teenager pretty much experiences social anxiety and her relationships with her parents who are you know getting divorced or pretty much divorced at this point are really strained with both of them her mum drinks a lot her dad is quite absent because he's a um you know a, a detective and he's very busy and so sexuality um is present in lots of freudian images that are kind of they come across in quite a threatening and mysterious concept. So you've got Tina's death scene, which has been said by film critics that it visually evokes a rape scene because of the way she's thrown around its bedroom, thrown around the ceiling. The way it's done evokes a kind of a a sexual assault. Freddie's glove between Nancy's legs in the bath when it comes up is regarded as quite a sort of a horrifically sexual sort of image. And that Wes Craven throughout it basically is alluding to the fact that Freddy Krueger is not only a child killer, which is what's said in the film, but a child molester and a rapist. Because he wasn't basically, what happened was, at the time of the film, when he first wrote it, he out and out put that Freddy Krueger was a child rapist. But because of a spate of paedophile activity that was happening in America in the early 80s, lots of children went missing, there were lots of, you know, Amber Alerts, things like that going on, there was a lot of um, sort of stranger danger panic he thought it would be and I completely understand why I think he was right it would be distasteful mm. to be very blatant about the fact that this was a child paedophile killer and they just kind of made him in the end a child killer but it's pretty much alluded to and it's said that these kind of themes of how Nancy's portrayed how Tina's portrayed and there's sort of these odd sexualized elements do basically very much hint to the fact that Freddy Krueger was not just a child killer but they'd never wanted to actually outright say it. Wes Craven said that the notion of the screenplay is that the sins of the parents are visited upon the children. But the fact that each each child is not necessarily stuck with their lot is still there. So Rob Englund said that in, in Nightmare on Elm Street, all of the adults are really damaged. They're alcoholics, they're drinking peach snaps, you know, that are hidden in, in, in cupboards, in um, laundry cupboards. They're on pills or they're just absent. They're just not really present parents. Um, and that the film, the parents in the film verge on being villains. And he said that the adolescents have to wade through that. And Heather Lankenkamp, is, as Nancy, is the last girl standing. She lives, she defeats Freddie. Heather Lankenkamp basically says that Nightmare is a feminist movie. But the more I look at it, it's a youth power film. Which I suppose it is. It's the, the kids have to overcome the adults, the, the sins of the adults. Yeah. Which I think is awesome, really, yeah. when you look at the layer subtext yeah. to it.
0: But I, I quite, I, I quite like that theme of the um, kids overcoming the sins of the adults because you're more than what your parents are. You know, you can, you have mm. power over your own destiny or something.
1: You do profound. No, you do, and that's it. But that is profound because it's true, and that is actually what started Wes Craven on this journey as a filmmaker. He grew up in a family with a lot of repressed anger, so he always believed that he and his family were kind of a textbook example of, of repress repressing your emotions and and your angst. So Wes Craven actually lost his father, who was an alcoholic in a factory hand when he was really young. And he grew up in a very strict Protestant household. He wasn't allowed to dance, drink or go to the movies.
0: Wow, not allowed to dance.
1: No, drink or go to the movies. Now, drinking, maybe you can understand that, but going to the movies? He didn't see his first movie until he was a senior in college, and that film was To Kill a Mockingbird.
0: His mind must have been blown.
1: It must have been. Imagine that. You, you're never wow. allowed to watch films in the theatre, and then suddenly there you are as a senior in college. It's
0: crazy. And then he made up for it by giving, gifting us with classics like Nightmare on Elm Street and The Serpent and the Rainbow
1: well this is what happened so he actually decided you know to let out his repressed emotions in gore he said as they say in psychological circles my family never got in touch with their rage so making movies these awful horror movies no less was i guess my way of purging this rage so he had you know the last house on the left which was his first one released in 1972 and that was a uh, very much a, a rape revenge film and it had scathing reviews a New York Times movie critic said, the party who wrote this sickening tripe and also directed the inept actors is Wes Craven. That's pretty much damning. Sickening tripe directed the inept actors. Wow. So yeah, not great. Yeah. Um, but later, the movie obviously has become kind of a cult classic and was a landmark in the genre of horror of, of women sort of you know of revenge a revenge movie which obviously has come through a hell of a lot with final girls and and lots of similar movies in decades since angley the director of crouching tiger hidden dragon and broke mountain said about the last house on the left it's one of the greatest films ever and now that i've seen it it should be banned so yeah that's what he thought about that so wes craven kind of he made the last house on the left and then later the hills have eyes which of course is another you know set in set in the sort of desert canyon area about mutant humans basically taking it upon themselves to to wreak their their wrath on on regular humans who are just trying to have a holiday Um, but that was released in 77 but after that craven's career kind of plateaued until he was reading an la times article one day now this is funny this feeds into mine and jess's first ever episode we did we did a joint one together on the serpent in the rainbow and for The Serpent in the Rainbow, Wes Craven actually read about the book. He read about the writer's experience in the LA Times. So the LA Times gives him a lot of inspiration. So Wes Craven read this article in the LA Times about the mysterious death, sudden death, of some young boys and some young men. And it was a nocturnal death syndrome called Sons, which is a case of unexplained cardiac arrest while in slumber. And it's that that article that actually inspired the concept of a nightmare on elm street where people effectively die in their sleep
0: oh, wow
1: mm. so craven had developed this fully fledged script by 1981 and he took this possibility of real life so the article which i'm going to get to in a minute and and wove that into the concept of a serial killer so he combined the two of them together and the movie follows four who were terrorized by this by this serial killer who is haunted in their dreams and basically killed one by one up until Nancy. In episode three of the franchise, actually, it's revealed that Freddy Krueger became a serial killer of children because he was the child of a nun who had been raped by a hundred criminally insane men in an asylum. He grew up in an abusive household, and as a result, apparently that is what shaped him to be a child, as we find out in the later films, paedophile and child killer. And then, of course, an angry mob of adults come in and um, terrorise him and burn him alive. Good for them. So in a 2008 interview with Cinema Fantastique, Craven explained that he wanted a villain more primal than the loony maniacs acting as antagonists in his previous horror horror films like The Last House on the Left. He said, I wanted to do something that was tied into the deep recesses of our subconscious. I had a history in academics, so I knew there were certain things that were universal. Craven decided there was no greater time of psychological peace in human existence than during sleep. So when he came across his article, he said, I'd read an article in the LA times about a family who had escaped the killing fields in Cambodia and managed to get to the U S things were fine. And then suddenly the young son was having very disturbing nightmares. He told his parents, he was afraid that if he slept, the thing chasing him would get him. So he tried to stay awake for days at a time. When he finally fell asleep, his parents thought the crisis was over. Then they heard screams in the middle of the night. By the time they got to him, he was dead. He died in the middle of a nightmare. Here was a youngster. It's horrendous. Here was a youngster having a vision of a horror that everyone older was denying. And that became the central line of A Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, it's horrendous.
0: I've just got like full body chills from hearing that. That is just fucking horrendous. That poor kid.
1: That's facts. It wasn't just him, though. So there were other cases of men dying in their sleep under similar circumstances. Ten cases of this son's occurred between October the 1st, 1986, in fact, so this was later on, and April the 30th, 1988. So this carried on till after the movie. So it was happening from the 70s and the 80s. And throughout this, I think it was about a 10-year period, through the late 70s, yeah, through to the late 80s, the age, age ranges of males were anything from sort of child up to 57 some of them experienced a form of cardiac arrest in their sleep and the direct causes are unknown so headlines ran in the la times and these were the ones that Wes craven was picking up on called the mysterious fatal malady striking among men and night deaths of asian men unexplained so there were all these articles that were just sort of peppering the la times about these unusual deaths and so that one, of course, came out in 1981 about the young boy, and that was said to have been the one that mainly inspired him. And investigators couldn't find any medical explanation. A few community members attributed, so a few community members, um, sort of East Asian community members, um, said that they thought the deaths were due to chemical nerve agents that refugee soldiers of the Vietnam War would have been exposed to. And the theory wasn't supported by doctors. A Dr. Larry V. Luman said, nerve gas doesn't act in this way, there's no evidence. Secondly, if it was nerve gas, why does it affect only males and why only during the night? So they thought, does this cause the kind of sleep terror and sleep death for these young kids and these adults? Was it to do with nerve gas? Some um, members of the community um, believed they were actually being punished by the spirits of their ancestors for leaving their homeland. Their anxiety centered around the inability to do right by your ancestral spirits because you're not there or because you you don't have the right things to perform the right rituals. I do think that for many of the Hmong of that generation, the traditional explanation remains salient, if not more salient than explanations related to cardiovascular problems. And that came from a gentleman called Dr. Um at the time. Wow. So yeah, this was going on and this just went on for years and years, um, but it's still unexplained, these deaths among Southeast Asians. Sorry, Southeast Asians, I apologise, not East Asians, Southeast Asians, particularly the Hmong group. Yeah, they don't know. So the threat of this mysterious death probably is more frightening than Freddy Krueger because they don't know the they cause just of it don't still. don't
0: know. Has there been yeah. any any deaths in, in recent recent years? Or
1: No, not that I could find. So it seemed to stop in the late 1980s from all the articles I looked at. If anyone out there knows any different, please let me know because I'm genuinely interested if, if it did carry on. But um, from everything I could read up on, it finished in the late 1980s. So... It is odd that it seems to be this period after the Vietnam War where people then moved, you know, from from Southeast Asia, they moved to America, and then a lot of them died.
0: I can see why the um, theory of a nerve gas or a nerve agent um, is such a popular one, because it's just, it's so weird that it's just over that short period that this specific community, this specific ethnic group, um, died in such a tragic, mysterious way. It's seriously fucked up.
1: Yeah, so basically, it's just that they don't understand how these refugees, you know, passed away after they left their homes after the Vietnam War. Um, they all died within a sort of a 10, 10, 12 year period.
0: That's crazy. Yep,
1: yeah, it's pretty scary. So, you know, that was a big inspiration, this terrible, terrible pandemic, really, among Southeast Asian men and boys, and particularly this young little boy. You know, dying in his sleep is, is, you know, in absolute fear. Oh, it's just, that haunts me, dude.
0: That's just completely fucked up on all different levels.
1: So following on from this, other things that added to Craven's inspiration was the concept of parents who neglected their... Their son's genuine fear or child's genuine fear of what was taunting his dreams in the Elm Street films. So it's the idea of that you know the girls and the and the boys they're not listened to by their parents. They're disconnected from reality. The adults they they're dealing with their own issues. Like I said before, you know they're alcoholics or they're they're sort of addicted to narcotics. And so it means that the kids of Springwood, which is where a Nightmare on Elm Street is filmed, I should probably have mentioned that at the beginning. Springwood are abandoned and defenseless. So, as mentioned before, the idea of Elm Street, actually that's, the name was taken from uh, the basically the death place of JFK, where he was shot dead. Robert England observed that every town has an Elm Street. To this day, England regularly autographs stolen Elm Street signs because of how common the name is. Every town has an Elm Street, and effectively, every town has, has this, this sort of disease effectively of a lot of ineffectual parents neglecting their children and not listening to them it does that is something that occurs a lot of parents are brilliant my parents definitely would have listened to me if i'd started talking about freddy Krueger. they probably would have been taking me to hospital but they would have listened but i think there is this element that a lot of the time children are ignored yeah which is so, sad and
0: tragic especially in the 80s i think i'd like to think that our generation is a little bit different but i'm sure every generation likes to think that <laughs> but i think yes yeah. especially in the 80s it was a, a thing where You know, children should be seen and not heard.
1: Well, yes. And this is the thing. So alongside that, there was this big thing of stranger danger anxiety Mm. mentioned before that sort of came out. In 1986, the Weekly Reader reported a poll stating that children in grades two through to six perceived stranger danger as more of a potential threat than a nuclear war. It was very big at that time. And it came to the forefront of the American public with worry about paedophiles and sex offenders that could lurk in safe neighborhoods, safe neighborhoods like Springwood, and Elm Street. So, Nightmare on Elm Street is located in what seems to be a kind of suburban utopia. You know, everything seems perfect. Beautiful houses, these beautiful teens, and they all love each other. They might have their little arguments, but you know, they're having a great time. But there's a bit like Twin Peaks or a bit like, um, you know, these other kind of suburban utopia sort of shows and films, there's a lot more going on underneath the surface. So, it's it's a lot darker than it looks. And as mentioned before, Craven chose not to confirm that Kruger was a paedophile, but he didn't want to exploit it. But it it was pretty much there through the Stranger Danger kind of aspect of the 80s. Not only did Craven draw inspiration for the violence in suburbia from the kind of Stranger Danger panic, but the concept of Elm Street came from his own personal experience. He said, this is a quote from Rez Craven, there was a particular man who scared me when I was little. He was a drunk that came down the sidewalk and woke me up when I was sleeping. I went to the window wondering what the hell was there. He just did a mindfuck on me. He basically somehow knew I was up there and he looked right into my eyes. I went back and hid for what I thought was hours. I finally crept back to the window and he was still there. Then he started walking almost half backwards so that he could keep looking at me down to the corner and turned. And I suddenly realised, my God, that's the direction of the entrance to our apartment building. I literally ran down to the front door and heard two stories down the front door open. I woke my big brother up and he went down with a baseball bat and nobody was there. Probably the guy heard him coming and ran. He was a drunk and just having a bit of a good time. But the idea of an adult who's frightening and enjoying terrifying a child was the origin of Freddy.
0: Good God, that's quite an origin.
1: Little, little Wes Craven being stalked by a drunk man who was basically coming to get him. And it was the big brother with the baseball bat that hopefully scared him away.
0: What a story. And shame, poor little Wes Craven. I must poor have a been baby. terrified. I know,
1: right? Little side note. So Freddy Krueger, of course, wore that very famous red and green striped jumper, as we've mentioned before. It was based on the DC Comics Plastic Man. The character could change shape, but you always knew it was him because the pattern of his clothing could be visible on whatever form he took. So Krueger's the same way. So you know, throughout the films, Krueger will change into various different characters. So in the first film, in A Nightmare on Elm Street, when Nancy runs out of screaming, After waking up with her arm burnt in class and she runs out into the hall and there's a girl saying, you've forgotten your pass, you need a hall pass. And she turns around and the girl waves at her with a a stripy jumper and a glove. And it's like Freddy Krueger. He morphs into anything. The colour, this is so interesting, of the sweater was the result of a 1982 Scientific American article which found the two most abrasively clashing colours to the human retina are red and green. So he chose the red and green to be abrasive.
0: Wow. And it worked
1: yep it's pretty scary anyway this this thing about um wes craven meeting this this man when he was a young boy and coming up with this villain compelled him to also look into his youth and think well what a name would work for this character so i've got this guy who terrified me as a child got this kind of scary outfit already for him but he needs a name allegedly wes craven's childhood bully was called fred krueger
0: see this is why you don't piss off writers (laughs)
1: <laughs> yep especially ones who are going to go on and make big flipping franchise films and going to become one of the most famous horror film characters of all time don't piss off these people so basically the bully also inspired the name of the last house on the left's villain krug so he's used this name a couple of times craven wanted his killer to sort of talk and taunt and to threaten so he chose to give freddy a glove of knives and he said that he wanted freddy's weapons to be quote something somebody a thousand years ago would have related to what is one of the first things that really terrified humans one would be a knife predators like cave bears and saber-tooth tigers and all of those creatures if you look at them they're just like knives hands full of knives and that became the basis for the glove
0: hands full of knives yep. wow
1: i kind of love that so that was how Freddy Krueger was built up. I mean, the fedora doesn't need any explanation. (laughs) It was just the 1930s kind of pulp fiction, pulp um, fiction, literally, um, look. And he just wanted to give Freddy Krueger a certain edge, a sort of certain stylish edge. That didn't come from any history. But there's kind of no denying, there's kind of no denying that the movie's a classic. Aesthetically a classic, but also I think it's, it's scarring childhood scarring dreams are your safe place they're supposed to be as the child you go to bed at night you know you're tucked in child or a teenager that's your safe space to declutter your day psychologically but no where's craven has to bring a monster into it to fucking chase you and slice you to bits and you can't escape unless you wake up
0: it's such a horrifying concept um and it literally gave me nightmares as a child
1: Oh, yeah. So Wes Craven was able to sort of warp his his nightmares from his own youth, scary things that affected him, his childhood bully, um, all these aesthetic ideas into one character and one franchise, packaged into the suburbs of a very beautiful area that really was housing a lot of dark secrets. And the children had to pay the price of what the parents did. And that kind of relates a lot to life now, doesn't it?
0: It does. It's a timeless kind of um, theme that you're working with so that it's it's a movie that still works today because of that
1: yeah and it won't change because children are always um unfortunately having to pay for the sins of their parents the children of springwood did in a nightmare on elm street and they did continually through the films it didn't stop but there we go guys that was a nightmare on elm street
0: oh my god that was fantastic and i'm probably am gonna sleep well i to say otherwise i'd be lying but that was
1: great because (laughs) because we were talking through it it actually ended up being longer it was only um eight pages of notes but we were talking so much it ended up being longer um so yeah that was a nightmare on elm street guys i can give you some learn from the best and some obscure films next (laughs) on learn from the best three documentaries to watch. I kind of was looking for some different stuff but actually I thought these were the most interesting ones so I've chosen number one. Watch I Am Nancy from 2011 and that is Heather Langenkamp of course played Nancy. It's a documentary that follows her attending several horror conventions across the globe where she interacts with fans to gain insights into why people are so drawn to the franchise and to the characters of Nancy and Freddie. And with it there's sort of there's some interviews with robert england and wes craven to help really understand what makes nancy the definitive final girl it's a great it's a great documentary it's not one of the best but it's really it's interesting and it's informative and it gives you a bit more about heather langen camp of course we see more of her in the wes craven's new nightmare film years later in the 90s but this i think gives a good insight into into how a Nightmare on Elm Street affected her, really. Um, the second one is Never Sleep Again, The Nightmare on Elm Street Legacy. So the film's got lots of photographs, storyboards, the art, all of the publicity materials, everything that went into A Nightmare on Elm Street. And it sort of expands on why Wes Craven wanted to make the film, so stuff we've discussed today, and explores some behind-the-scenes stories of the original film and all of its, its sequels. It's it's pretty informative, it's pretty long but it's pretty informative. And so, yeah, I would definitely recommend that one. The third one is a very interesting watch, and this actually is more to do with number two, Freddy's Revenge. This is a documentary called Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. And as mentioned, it's a documentary about Mark Patton, who I mentioned previously, who played Jesse in Freddy's Revenge and was going to play Glenn in A Nightmare on Elm Street. And it's basically the impact his life had after paying up the impact that, A nightmare on elm street freddy's revenge had on his life after he played it because he got a lot of flack for apparently turning the freddy franchise very homoerotic and even the screenwriter david chaskin blamed him and saying that he didn't write a gay freddy film and that mark patton's performance threw in a lot of homoerotic subtext made it seem very gay because of the way he screamed and things like that really unfair accusations so david chaskin insisted screenwriter that he didn't have any homoeroticism in the film but as you go through the documentary you realize that david chaskin admits he did and that mark Patton was kind of the fall guy for when it didn't turn out in david chaskin's favor he blamed mark Patton, and it's it's a, a lot about mark Patton and how it's affected him it's a really really good documentary in fact lovely instagram page bad critic recommended it so thank you bad critic they recommended me to watch it and i did and it was great but very sad but also great so check that one out. Now for the Obscure Film Club. I have five movies for you. Slumber from 2017. Alice, played by Maggie Q, is a rationally minded sleep doctor who is forced to abandon scientific reason when she meets a family being terrorised by a parasitic demon known as the Knockin. Right, I can't pronounce this, guys. Natisa. Which tea paralyzes tea. victims. Knocked into something like that. Which paralyzes victims as they sleep. So there we go. Little bit of a sleep demon. Of course, number two on the list. Very much <laughs> plays into um, the whole idea of the horror franchise. And the two characters meet each other later. Oh yes, it's Friday the thirteenth. Now the reason I chose this one is, I mean, if anyone needs any spoilers, when Jason. Uh, the lead character of the rest of the films, dies at a summer camp. His mother seeks revenge on the teenage camp workers, picking them off one by one. So it's very much a revenge coming back at you movie. So yeah, it's it's pretty great. Number three, The Slumber Party Massacre from 1982. A female high school student slumber party turns into a bloodbath as a newly escaped psychotic serial killer wielding a power drill prowls her neighbourhood. Number four on the list, Bad Dreams, 1988. Unity Field, a free love cult from the 1970s, is mostly remembered for its notorious mass suicide, led by Harris, played by Richard Lynch, who was its charismatic leader. While all the members are supposed to burn in a fire together, young Cynthia, played by Jennifer Rubin, is spared. Years later, the nightmare of Unity Field remains buried in her mind. But when those around Cynthia start killing themselves and she begins having visions of Harris, she may be forced to confront the past before it confronts her. And number five on the list, also from 1988, Dream Demon, it's actually a British horror film. A young bride-to-be's anxieties over her upcoming wedding take on a horrifying demonic form in this rubber reality shocker from director co-writer Harley When. Diana moves into her sprawling new London home. She starts to experience strange and terrifying nightmares. But are these blood-curdling night terrors merely the symptom of an unsettled mind? Or the sign of something far sinister? Far more sinister at work. So yeah, that's another great one there. And that is the Obscure Film Club and Learn From The Best. And that is A Nightmare on Elm Street.
0: Fantastic choices. Thank you. And wow, what a fantastic episode. Like, I'm still stuck on some of the the bits that it was based on like that poor kid dying in his sleep uh, like, that's know, horrendous t- no. that's a that's tiny, tiny little kid
1: a t- tiny little kid going to have a good night's sleep and then he never wakes up literally never wakes up horrifying
0: horrifying and then
1: where's Craven's own lifestyle coming into it you know there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there's but it's all lot. fabulous
0: it is and it's a great movie it's a classic
1: it is a classic, and I think it will be a never-ending classic, to be perfectly honest. So yeah, that's it. That is A Nightmare on Elm Street, guys. That's it for this episode.
0: Before we go, um, we are planning something special for our season finale, so stay tuned for that. We, As soon as we have finalised our planning, we will load the details.
1: We will. Episode fourteen. We'll then have a couple of weeks break just to kind of get up to speed, get a few more episodes under our belt, and <laughs> sort out all this merch that we keep talking about, and start properly promoting it. And uh, yes, watch out for episode fourteen because we we need a little break, don't we? Don't we?
0: We do. Um, we yeah. Just you know, just a little bit to clear our heads, catch up on some horror movies.
1: Yep. And get planning for the next fourteen episodes. Whoa! Hey! Yeah.
0: But uh, on that note, good night, heathens.
1: Good night, heathens. See you next time.